The legal views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute or contain legal advice. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. As I speak before you right now, it is Grammy Day, my favorite day of the year. I love it more than Christmas. I love it more than the date in which I was born. Grammy Day, Sunday. It is my Super Bowl. I'm so excited. I love the shows. I love the performances. I love almost everything about the Grammys. I actually have a couple things that I want to fix about the Grammys, but I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But how's it going, everybody? I'm all here alone this week. Uh, Dave is, uh, well, Dave is, I want to say Dave's on a trip, but Dave's always on a trip. But yeah, Dave's on a trip, so he's out. But you got me today, you and me, uh, you know, little one-on-one podcasting. I'm going to be talking to you today. And we got a lot of great stuff. And so we will mourn the fact that Dave is not here, but we will pick ourselves back up because we got lots of great stuff going on today. Let me lay da- let me lay out for you what we got, okay? Coming up in the next segment, uh, we have our guest, Laura Powers, will be joining us. If you don't know who she is, it is my pleasure to be the one who gets to introduce you to her. She is a singer. She is a actress. She is a writer. She is a podcaster. She hosts a bunch of podcasts, in fact, on writing and uh, some of her other interests, but she's also the host of the Behind the Music podcast, a music interview show in which she's interviewed a lot of cool people, including people we've interviewed on our podcast, including Kevin Bruner, the president of CD Baby. That was a great interview. She's also interviewed Lisa Loeb, who's one of my favorite artists ever. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see if I can get some good info out of her about those interviews. But uh, she's, she's also a very talented content creator in her own right. She does all kinds of different content creation in many different fields. And I want to talk to her a bit about her experience with that and how she sort of combines these different content areas together to create unique offerings for her fans when she puts her art out into the world. Because in the new music industry, it's all about combining your talents, finding unique ways to present yourself out in the world. Don't just be a musician. Chances are, if you're a musician, you're good at other stuff too. Find a way to combine that stuff together and be unique in this world because there are many musicians out there and combining some of your other talents in your art, if you're an actress, a writer, things like that, can help create something unique for your fans to enjoy. And we're going to talk to Laura about a little bit about that because I really do think that's very important in the new music industry. In the third segment, what we're going to do, I kind of think this is a nice special treat here. As I've talked about in previous episodes, we're currently in the process of putting together the audiobook for Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence, and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. That's my book. It talks about how to achieve success in your music career, and more importantly, doing it without a record label. It points out the pitfalls of record deals, how you can avoid those kind of deals, and achieve success on your own terms and truly control your own destiny. And the book's been great. Uh, the people who've read it have really enjoyed it, and I've really uh, appreciated your kind words about the book, readers. And so we wanted to make an audiobook. And so I've actually been in the studio recording the audiobook. And we have, I would say it's about 95% done. Um, the recordings are pretty much done. We still got to do some last minute, minute fine tuning and tweaking before we have it where we want to put bring it out to the world. But I figured as a treat for you guys, since Dave's not here with me to talk about pop culture and all that stuff, I figured in our third segment, I could play for you the first chapter of that book. Um, it is you know, recorded in a top shelf studio. So it's going to have a nice sound to it. And, uh, I think it can also be a nice way to sort of, if you're sort of on the fence on buying my book and if you are, come on, man, you know, get it together. Let's, let's, let's pull the trigger on that particular transaction. You can get it at amazon.com, but I'm about to, but for those of you who are still wondering whether you want to get this book, I'm going in the third segment, you're going to hear the first chapter of it from my audio book, for free. So a nice little preview of the book, if you will. So uh, I hope you're going to enjoy that. So we got Laura Powers, we got my book, and of course we got some great stuff in this segment, all to bring you up to the Grammys that are coming up uh, later tonight. I don't know when you're going to download this, but it is 5 p.m. Eastern time right now on Sunday, the Sunday of the Grammys. And right now I got the Grammys on the brain. It's my favorite day of the year. Love me some Grammys. 
And if you follow me on Twitter, you know that my ballot is already on Twitter. So I, I like to pick the Grammys every year. I I don't like to toot my own horn. And I, I, I try to be humble about things when I can. But I would say I am above average when it comes to picking Grammy winners. So if you go on my Twitter profile, uh, you can see the people who I think are going to win the Grammys this year. And I'm not saying you can take, I'm not saying take it to the bank, you know, don't, don't take those picks and go to Vegas right now, but I feel pretty solid on a few of them. Let me just pull up some of my picks here. I'm feeling pretty good about Adele generally. I think she's going to have a good night tonight. I have her winning record of the year. I have her winning song of the year, and I have her for best pop solo performance. The, the only real big upset I have tonight, and this is, this would be the mother of all upsets. And I was very nervous making this pick because I think I'm going to get laughed at, but I just, I have a feeling. I have a feeling about this one. For album of the year, I have Sturgill Simpson winning A Sailor's Guide to Earth. And on the face, this seems pretty crazy because he's up against Adele, Beyonce, Justin Bieber, and Drake, arguably four of the biggest names going in pop music right now. And before this Grammy nomination, nobody knew who Sturgill Simpson was. Hell, I didn't know who Sturgill Simpson was. Hell, I don't really know who Sturgill Simpson is now. I just started listening to his music a few days ago and didn't really know much about him. His music's pretty good. I'll give him that. He sounds great. Um, I think I read somewhere that his album that's up for album of the year has only sold about uh, 150,000 copies so far, which you know all these artists he's up against have gone platinum. So uh, it would be probably the biggest upset in award show history, but here's my rationale. First of all, album of the year is known for its upsets. Um, look, you know, Beck won a few years ago. Nobody saw that coming. Arcade Fire won in like, what was that? 2009, 2010, something like that. Nobody saw that coming. That Twitter nearly set on fire when Arcade Fire won album of the year. And, but I think Sturgill Simpson's going to win. And the reason why is because of what I think to be one of the greatest faults with the Grammy voting process, which is that they really need to not allow for votes. You know, they need to right now, the grant, let me start again. The Grammys have a big problem with vote splitting, particularly in the categories that mix genres like album of the year. So when you put four very powerful, very well-known, very, you know, pop acts with strong fan bases, they're going to split the vote. You know, the people who like pop music, they're going to split the votes between all these different pop artists. Meanwhile, you have Sturgill Simpson, the only country artist in the category. And I'm guessing all of Nashville is just going to line up behind Sturgill Simpson. So he could win this thing with only, you know, 30% of the vote because of vote splitting. And so if I were, you know, if I were were if I were the king of the Grammys and I had full control over how the Grammys operated, they really should have measures in place to prevent vote splitting. There's a couple ways they could do it. They could do some sort of instant runoff system where the Grammy voters for those major categories in which the genres are combined, you rank your preferences by one to five, most preferred to least preferred for that award, and then you do an instant runoff. So you look at all the first place votes. If nobody has a majority of first place votes. Then you go to second place votes. You know, you eliminate the lowest person and you do second place votes, uh, instant runoff until you get somebody who has a majority of votes. Or what you can do is do kind of how they do it with like MVP voting for basketball, where you rank your top three. And then if you if you pick somebody first place, they get three points, second place, two points, first place, third place, one point, most points wins. That way, if you that way, it can prevent a situation where maybe 30% of the recording Academy, all of whom are located in Nashville are going to pick album of the year because there's only one country act in that, not in those among those five nominations. And there's multiple pop acts. And so if I were the King of the Grammys, I would say that at least in these four categories, the four major categories, best new artist, record of the year, song of the year and album of the year, where you have a combination of genres, they should really do some kind of instant runoff system or point, ranking system for the voting to prevent you know vo vote splitting like this from happening and of course all of this is hedging on the fact that i am predicting sturgill win turgill simpson to win best or to win album of the year in what will be the biggest upset in grammy's history and of course if i'm wrong which i could very well be then this is all kind of irrelevant
But really, it isn't because this has happened before. And everybody, if y'all get mad that Arcade Fire wins Album of the Year, y'all get mad that Beck wins for Album of the Year, this is how you fix it. Anyway, so that's the first thing I would do to fix the Grammys. The second thing I would do to fix the Grammys, and this is kind of selfish for me because my favorite thing about the Grammys is doing what I'm doing right now, where I'm actually in the middle of a Grammy voting pool with several of my friends, uh, Evan and Elisa, who you've heard on the Break the Business podcast before they subbed in for me on an episode once. They... Um, are in this pool with me as are uh, folks I've had on this podcast before. And we try to pick the winners and basically the, whoever picks the most correct wins. And I won last year and it was awesome. And I love this Grammy voting pool. I look forward to it every year. What I would ask the Grammys to do, because this drives me crazy every year is tell every, tell the world what the telecast awards are going to be. Cause there's over a hundred something Grammy awards. They don't announce them all during the actual CBS broadcast. They only announce about 10 per five to 10% of them. The rest of them are announced in the pre-telecast awards um, because there's way too many. And that's fine, except if you're, you know, like me or the many, many people out there who like to do these, you know, voting pools, you know, for Grammy parties, you don't know what nominees are going to be up during the actual telecast, except for the four majors, uh, record of the year, song of the year, album of the year, best new artist. Other than that, it's a crapshoot. And that really stinks because, you know, you want to know what you're picking and, you know, sometimes, and then you'll get to the, and, you, and the best you can do is kind of guess what you think are going to be the ones for the telecast. And then some of them wind up getting announced before the telecast. There winds up being some that none of us picked because they weren't on the list of things to pick during the telecast. And this could all be fixed by the Grammys just telling us what the nominees are going to be during the telecast every year. It doesn't, ha- so, you know, you don't have to tell us, you know, it doesn't have to be the same ones every year. I get you want to mix them up from year to year, but tell us what they're going to be like two weeks out so that we can all have our fun Grammy parties and enjoy the Grammys. Is that so much to ask? Anyway, so that's, that's how to fix the Grammys. And, but in a way, you know, 99% of it is perfect because I love the Grammys and I'm excited for tonight. I'm already getting stoked and I hope I'm going to win this year because nothing to me is more important than bragging rights amongst my friends. All right, some quick housekeeping matters before we get into the stories for this week. And uh, we got some nice, good music industry, indie artist stuff to talk about. But before all of that, let's let's take a step back here and just talk about how you can contact us. You can reach out to the Break the Business podcast by emailing us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. Well, why would you want to email us, you might ask? Hey, because why not? We're great people. But more importantly, you can email us because you might have questions you want us to answer on the show. Maybe you're an indie artist and you have a question about your career. You just want some quick tips or something. Or maybe you want us to talk about a specific topic during the show. If you email us and ask us you know, to talk about that topic, we very well might. Uh, you can ask us um, if you want to give us some warranted show criticism. That's also at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R and see my Grammy picks. You can follow my co-host in Abstentia, Dave, at MetalDave85. He's having the time of his life in New York right now, and I hope he's coming back next week so that we can uh, talk some more music stuff. Uh, You can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, and I very much hope that you do. We got a nice, fun thing going here, a nice podcast community we're developing, and the way you help us move forward is by throwing us some ratings and, you know, keeping that community alive. Okay. So, Laura Power's coming up next in just a bit. Then we're going to have a chapter from my book. We've talked about the Grammys. Let's talk about our story for this week. We are updating you on the Kesha Dr. Luke litigation. Last week, we gave you an update on this ongoing legal battle between Kesha and Dr. Luke. Let me give you a little bit of background. For those of you who have been hiding under a rock and just don't know anything music industry related and haven't been following anything for the last few years, since about 2014... Uh, recording artist, super famous recording artist, Kesha, has been involved in a lawsuit with her producer, Dr. Luke. She's been trying to get out of recording, production, and songwriting agreements that she has with him. Uh, She's alleged that he's breached the agreements, and she has also alleged that he has committed physical, emotional, even sexual abuse against her. And uh, this lawsuit was taking place in two states at one point. There was a California suit And there was a New York suit. The California suit, Kesha dropped that one a few months back. Now there's just the New York suit. And it looked like the New York suit was going to sort itself out because, um, you know, it looked like they were going to get back into the studio. Uh, 
Luke had agreed that he wasn't going to be involved in any of the recording project, which is what Kesha wanted. She didn't want to work directly with him. And so, but you know, he would, it would still be his label and his production company, but he wouldn't be personally involved. And it looked like that was going to be the compromise in what has been a harrowing litigation that has underscored all of the major problems that come about when you do business in exclusive recording agreements, which as we've talked about on the show are fundamentally dangerous documents that you really, really should think twice, three times and four times about signing. But that notwithstanding, um, Kesha last week filed a lawsuit saying that this compromise that they had worked out had already fallen apart, that according to her uh, amended complaint, uh, Luke was not approving song, uh, not approving songs. He was not approving producers. Basically, she was accusing him of doing everything he could to slow down the process, to stall out her career, to prevent her from getting her music out into the world, which, by the way, is always a risk with exclusive recording agreements. If you sign a contract with somebody that says you're only going to record for that person and you're going to let that person fully control all aspects of the content creation process, you run the risk of that person saying, well, I don't want to work with you anymore. And guess what? Since you can only work with me, you're done in the music business. And that's seems to be what Kesha's alleging she's run into. But we, we knew, Dave and I, when we were talking about this last week, Dave asked the legitimate question, has Luke responded yet? And we, at that time he hadn't, but we knew that the filing was on its way. It was inevitable. Luke was going to respond, and sure enough, he did. On February 6th, Luke struck back. He filed a memorandum of law with this New York court, alleging that Kesha owes Luke over $1.3 million in unpaid royalties. Now, if you're listening right now and you're saying to yourself, wait, how does the artist owe the label slash producer royalties to the tune of $1.3 million? That's not a mis... You know, I, I didn't say... I didn't misspeak. It is indeed the artist that owes the label royalties. And you might be saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. How can an artist owe label royalties? Well, here's how. Most major label deals or label deals or often producer deals have what's called a 360 clause or a 360 provision. And basically what these provisions say is that the label, in this case, Dr. Luke's label, is entitled to a set percentage of that artist's non-record revenue. So, so putting aside the money that the artist makes on the record, all the other money the artist makes from touring, from merchandising, uh, if they act in movies, if they write books, if it's anything related to the entertainment industry, the label gets 30%. Um, and you know that's that's a number that tends to be the standard figure. It's usually 25 to 30% of all the money the artist makes. And that's off the top, by the way. So that's not, you know, after all the costs are deducted, it's, you know, the label eats first before the artist even does. And when you're talking about 30% of gross, that can often be 50 or more percent of net when all the costs are deducted, or sometimes more if the if the artist is a big touring artist and has a lot of expenses. And that can be a lot of money to pay to a company that isn't actually directly affecting any of those things. You know, the label isn't necessarily helping you with your tour, helping you with merchandising, uh, certainly not helping you get acting roles in movies or, you know, book deals. And so for somebody who's not actually helping you do those things, that's a lot of money to pay to somebody. And in this case, it would seem from um, Luke's filing that he had some sort of 360 provision with Kesha. And according to Luke's loss, uh, according to Luke's filing, Kesha had not been paying him his his 30% or whatever it is to the tune of over a million dollars. And, you know, that and we're going to talk about for the many reasons why that's problematic. But, you know, as we're talking about 360 deals, I kind of want to take a step back here and talk about how it used to be in the old days. In the old days, i.e. 15, 20 years ago, before 360 deals existed, Certainly, record deals were still exploitative documents. The idea of record companies exploiting artists is nothing new. But basically, what used to happen is an artist would sign a deal, and that deal would be very unfavorable in terms of royalties. The artist would get a very small royalty on every record sold to the tune of 15%, which would then be that 15% royalty would then be reduced because there'd be like a packaging deduction in there, a percentage of sales deduction. And more importantly, that very tiny royalty that the artist got 
would still have to pay back all the money the label spent to make the music. And so unless you were the most successful artists in the world, you probably were never seeing any money from your record deal. And despite that, it's the system still worked and it didn't work well, but it worked. And the reason why is that an artist made this rationalization to themselves. You know what? I'm not making any money off of this record, but it's okay because the label's still doing its job and I can still make money from other sources. When I go out and tour, I make money there. When I uh, sell merchandise, I can make money there. And so I can make the numbers work even though I'm not making anything off of my record deal. And for decades, that imperfect system worked to the extent that it could. And everything managed to still stay together. And that all changed in the 2000s, the early 2000s, when the bottom fell out of the industry, when people stopped buying music the same way they used to, when the record industry, the record segment of the music industry collapsed, and all of a sudden labels realized that they weren't making enough money from the, you know, even when they took 90 to 95 cents of every dollar that they, that, you know, from the sales of records from their artists, they still couldn't make the numbers work. And so they said, well, where else can we get money? And they looked at all of the money that their artists under their label were making in touring and in merchandising and all these other non-record revenue streams and said, well, we want a piece of that too. And all of a sudden they started writing these 360 deals and having their artists sign them where they get a piece of every kind of entertainment industry money the artist makes outside of record revenues. And so the system, you know, and, and so now in the last 15 years or so, this balance that had existed in the industry has been broken. Labels are getting a piece of everything and artists are becoming artists who are under the yoke of these deals are making it harder and harder are finding it harder and harder to make ends meet because 30%, as many of these, that tends to be the 360 rate, is a lot of money when it comes off the top. And, you know, if you're an artist, you think of it this way. You know, you have a 360 deal. You make money from touring. That money comes in. You got to give 15% to your manager. You got to give 10% to the booking agent. You got to give 5 to 10% to the lawyer who negotiated the deal. You then have to pay, and that's all off the top, and then you then have to pay all of the money to get that touring show together, pay all the people that have to be paid. And then assuming there's any crumbs of income left and then, Oh, sorry. And, and then of course you're giving the label, it's 30% for the 360 deal. And then if you happen to maybe turn a profit after all those people got their slice of the pie, you then got to pay the government taxes and whatever's left it's probably not a lot to make your ends meet. And it's certainly a heck of a lot more if you didn't have to pay your do-nothing label. It's 360 commission. These things are a plague on the industry. And labels are going, and labels aren't justified in taking this money. They're just not. I'm sorry. They're not directly affecting these revenue streams. They're not helping you make any of these, you know, deals happen with respect to touring or merchandising. And even if they were, they don't deserve that money to the tune of 30%, your manager who actually is helping you coordinate all of these things isn't getting 30%. Why should label get 30%? And what the labels are going to argue, because I've heard this argument from labels when I've been in record deal negotiations, is they're going to say, we deserve this money because of all the work we do in furthering the artist's career. If it weren't for our work in making the artist a huge success in the recorded music industry, without our work of helping that artist sell a bunch of records, they would never become a touring success or a merchandising success. And so we deserve a piece of the artist's income in all areas. And my response to that is twofold. It's one, no, because you're already more than adequately compensated for the services you provide for my client's records in terms of the 90% or more of all the money that comes in from those records. That's already enough. End of transaction. And secondly, I do not buy the argument that just because a person's or an organization's activity indirectly increases somebody's income, that they're entitled to a percentage of that income. You know, an example I like to tell people is 
For me, I like to eat Egg McMuffins. I actually brought this example up during the NAM conference. I love to eat Egg McMuffins. In fact, they're so important for my legal career, I can't start a day without them. Uh, if I, if I'm not as productive at work unless I get that egg McMuffin in the morning and I pay for that egg McMuffin. But if McDonald's were to come to me and say, Hey Ryan, we know that you're not as productive without us. You can't be a successful lawyer without our egg McMuffin. So it's without your egg McMuffin. So it's only fair that we get a set percentage of all of your legal fees as an attorney. We should get a set percentage of all of your income. And the answer to that is no. You're already compensated, McDonald's. I have paid for the Egg McMuffin. The artist has already paid very much for the services a label provides in terms of that label getting almost all of the money that comes in from the sales of those records. And so, no, I don't buy that argument. And if we are going to take that argument, it should go both ways. There are many artists who are so big and so popular that they actually make the label more successful and indirectly make the label more financially strong. Should the artist get a set percentage of the label's profits? Well, the label's going to say no, but why not? Let's go with the same logic. If you Apparently, if you indirectly affect somebody's income, you should get a piece of that income. But of course, that's absurd, and 360 deals are absurd. And the reason why I want to talk about 360 deals with respect to the Kesha and Dr. Luke example is now we see why 360 deals can be troubling for artists in the litigation context. Because... These 360 deals can put an artist in a situation, I've seen this before, uh, time and time again, where an artist can lose a big chunk of their leverage if they ever sue a label that's mistreating them because the label's going to come back and say, well, you still owe us some money in unpaid 360 payments. And this happens because when an artist signs a 360 deal, they almost always have trouble uh, meeting the requirements of this deal. One... Artists aren't accountants. They're not, you know, maybe they're not keeping very careful track of every dollar that comes in because they're not accountants, they're musicians. And they're, you know, they may not be able to, you know, track the money that should be going to a label. And they may not be responsible enough as an artist to keep money, you know, socked away to make sure that you could, you know, you pay the label in keeping with the 360 deals requirements. And moreover, it can be hard for an artist to meet these 360 obligations because they have to eat. And as we've said before, once you pay the manager, once you pay the lawyer, once you pay the booking agent, once you pay the band, once you pay all the people you have to pay, there's not enough money left to pay the label its 360 share and still be able to eat. And so if in the event that your label mistreats you and you want to sue them, which by the way, has a very high chance of happening because I mean, very few record deals make it to their end without somebody getting sued. The label's always going to have something to hold over you because nine times out of 10, you're not going to have fully complied with that 360 deal because it's just too onerous. And now you run into the situation Kesha's running into where she could be losing leverage in her deal because she could very well owe Dr. Luke over a million dollars because that's a because she had trouble, you know, keeping track of that money and having that money while still being able to eat. And so, you know, she's run into this problem she's run into. And so this Kesha Dr. Luke case is a cautionary tale. And I, I use that phrase a lot when I talk about this case. And I, I say that this case demonstrates a wide range of pitfalls that artists can encounter. It demonstrates the dangerousness of record deals. It, uh, discusses it, it it underlies the dangerousness of an exclusive recording agreement and how it can trap artists and stall out their careers as what may very well be happening in this Kesha case. And in this case, it and to serve our most recent example, the Kesha Dr. Luke case is a cautionary tale for artists who sign 360 deals because in the event that you want to sue the label to advocate for your rights, you can be in a position where you lose leverage because you're almost always going to owe the label in a 360 arrangement. So what is the moral of the story? Don't sign these damn things. Don't sign 360 deals. In this new music industry, to sort of talk about what we talked about earlier with Laura Powers, in this new music industry, you're likely going to need to maximize the number of revenue streams you have. You're going to need to create a wide variety of content. Very few of you are going to be able to earn a good living just from the sale of your recorded music. It's just not going to happen. The numbers don't work in this new music industry anymore. But you can make ends meet 
by touring with merchandise, with crowdfunding campaigns, things like Patreon, uh, if you, you know, by writing stuff, by acting in movies, by creating art, by taking all of the things that you're good at as an artist, any talent you have, finding interesting ways to combine them together and leverage your talent. And we're, we're going to talk about how that can work with Laura Powers. And that can mean creating a wide variety of revenue streams. And you're going to need to do that to succeed and to make enough money to eat and pay your rent. And so you're going to need to be able to keep as much money of that money as possible to make this work. And that means not paying it to not paying 30% of that money to an organization that has nothing to do with directly increasing any of those other revenue streams. So the new music industry model is completely antithetical to the 360 deal. Artists can't do both barring very few exceptions. And so, uh, let's hope that you can look at that case and see the warning in there and, uh, let's get happy again because it is Grammy day and let's, uh, let's be positive about that. And let's be happy about the fact that we got Laura powers coming up next on the Break the Business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time, my new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry. Thanks very much for your support. Welcome back to the Break the Business podcast. She is a musician, actress, writer, model, and host of the Behind the Music podcast, a music industry interview show available on iTunes. You can find out more about her by following her on Twitter at ThatLauraPowers or by going to www.LauraPowers.net. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura Powers is on the Break the Business podcast. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, very much our pleasure. Uh, always have a soft spot for a fellow podcaster. But, of course, podcasting is just one of many things you do. You are multi-talented, music, singing, acting, writer, uh, modeling. You got so much great stuff going on. Can you walk the listeners through some of your career highlights that have brought you to where you are today? Sure. So, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm also a songwriter and a singer. I'm an actress and a model. And most recently, I've been focusing a lot on my writing work. So I have in the past a couple of years released six books. I've written a screenplay and a TV pilot that I'm pitching. And then I've done a lot of TV and media work. So I've been featured by BuzzFeed. I've been on NBC. I've been on some travel shows. So, yeah, lots of different things. And more recently, I've kind of come back to music. Uh, so I started out as an actress and did musical theater and would write songs for the shows that I was in and then got into other songwriting after that as well. Whoa. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Okay. So, see, you, you, you started off by impressing me. Now you've just made me feel bad because you've written, how many books did you say? I've actually written seven, but I've published six. So one of them I'm contemplating um, getting a traditional publishing deal because I self-published all the other ones. Oh, so you, I'm shopping that now that I'm more known. <laughs> you, you've written seven. I've written one book and I may never <laughs> write another one again because it was really hard to do. And, you know, you just you're like, oh, I'll do these seven books in between this TV pilot I'm going to write and this TV show I'm going to be on and. Do you sleep? Does sleep end up in your schedule somewhere? Like, how do you fit that in? Oh, it's so funny. Well, I'm actually a psychic and intuitive, so that what? fits in because I do. Yeah, I do a lot of um, channeling, and a lot of the messages that I get that I use for my writing or for my songwriting, I get very quickly. Basically, it just comes really fast. So, I use that to my advantage in terms of writing. So, I write very quickly compared to most people. My first book I wrote in about six weeks, and I had booked a talk at a library and decided I needed to have something to show for it, <laughs> and so I just wrote it, and then I got it more polished in terms of the cover design and all that later. But yeah, that all fits together in terms of the creative piece, because basically it's just, you know, I'm getting information that I then translate into creative projects like music and writing. You, you're a psychic too. You buried the lead, Laura. 
that, that, sh- that should have been how we start. I don't even want to talk about music with you. I kind of just want you to predict my future now. Like, I mean, pardon my ignorance yeah. on how it works with psychics. Like, does it work that way? Like, could you tell me right now what's going to happen to me tomorrow? Well, so first of all, when I'm doing a reading, I do like get into a certain mindset so that I can focus and get the information clearly when I'm just talking. I'm not necessarily that said I do flashes sometimes. So, um, it it might be possible for me to get some information. The timeline thing is, can be tricky. Like I will ask the question to the guides and then they'll show me information and I don't always know exactly when it's coming. Oh my. Okay, this is just be- becoming all the more intriguing for me. I promise <laughs> I promise you we'll talk about music and I know I'm totally putting you on the spot there here, but is there any way you can do something psychic related right now? And I know this is completely an unreasonable request, but I've never had the chance to talk to a psychic before and I kind of need to know like how- Okay. Well, I'll just I'll just very briefly tune in and and then I'll say uh, if people want to see me really sing my work like a longer clip uh, you can watch the video of me on BuzzFeed where I do several readings for people. This um, is right, so, so damn exciting. <laughs> so just checking in, um, angels, please let me know what would be helpful for John right now. Okay, so they're just showing me that you're like really empathic. Are you familiar with that term? Like I, I can sense the feelings in others or? Yeah, basically an empath is someone who absorbs and take it, takes in energy or emotions from other people. So I'm just being shown that you do that um, unconsciously. Of course, it's not something people do on purpose. And so they're just sharing with me that it's important for you to sort of clear yourself off, especially with being such a public person. So this is something that has become um, important for me to be aware of, too, as a host. And as I'm literally interacting with millions of people online through my videos, um, through my podcast and media songs, etc., is basically every any person you're connecting with, you're or they're watching or listening to your stuff, you're connecting with them kind of energetically, and so it's important for you to clear yourself off if you're an empath, especially. Oh my god! So what what is that like? How do I clear myself off? This is I'm, I'm, this is so intriguing. <laughs> It's funny how often this happens where someone's interviewing me and then it turns into something totally different. Um, So the first thing I do is just recommend to talk with angels, especially Archangel Michael. He's a really amazing protector. Um, Another great simple tool is you can envision yourself taking a shower of like golden white light and that's very clearing. And then there's physical tools like using sage or taking like a sea salt bath or even a shower. I mean, there's a reason why when people have yucky stuff happen, they want to take a shower. It's very cleansing, not just physically, but in terms of your energy field as well so what if i shower in golden light with sea salt (laughs) perfect (laughs) oh oh my god see this is like i kind of want to have you on for more psychic readings because i mean look the the listeners they get to hear about music every week how many times can they uh, be with somebody who has such a strong spiritual connection Uh, anyway i I, but i digress um (laughs) if if, if we get if we can go back to the natural world here uh i I do want to talk about your your music podcast uh uh uh, break the business that's my music podcast yours is behind the music um you've interviewed a lot of cool people on this podcast i was just i was looking through the episodes i was like man she gets some good gets you've interviewed kevin bruner from cd baby i love this guy he's super insightful uh and lisa Loeb was one of my favorite musicians ever so yeah you must have gotten so much great insight and advice from these people uh can you give us some of the best advice for indie artists that you've garnered from one of these interviewees Gosh, well, I I think I'm just taking information that I've gotten sort of as a whole versus necessarily from one person in particular, but just the importance of being consistent, doing your work, um, don't give up. I mean, I know that's something people hear often, but at the same time, it's important to stay true to your own soul and your heart and not try to compromise for just whatever you think is quote unquote successful. What I see of really successful people is they follow their own inner vision, whatever that is, even if it seems weird or (laughs) unusual or unpopular. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And certainly risking on taking risks or risking unpopularity, doing things differently. That's the hallmark of indie artists these days. You have to be afraid. You can't be afraid to do not do things the way they've been done before. Absolutely. And yeah, it's so important. And I think that's important in life, too, <laughs> not just as an artist. <laughs> um, and it's a particularly strong struggle for indie artists because they've seen artists come before them for generations that have 
done it with major record labels that have done it by spending millions of dollars releasing and promoting albums. And they have to be able to be strong enough in their, in who they are and what they want to do to say, I don't have to do it that way. Not with all this modern technology we have available to us, uh, to use pr uh, programs and platforms like CD baby, Kevin Bruner's, uh, company, uh, to find right. innovative ways to get my content out there. Right. Yeah. It's really never been easier as an indie artist to, you know, get your work produced, to get a following and to get feedback. So I think it's really amazing. And it's unfortunate, but I think a lot of artists kind of come from the opposite perspective and they feel like, oh, it's so hard to get a record deal <laughs> instead of like, wow, it's amazing. I don't need to do that. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> um, and I imagine a lot of that has driven you and your own work in music um, when you when you put music out there or when you put any kind of content out there. It, it sounds like you have thrived in the, you know, self-creating, self-releasing world that, you know, you have you enjoyed having that direct connection to your fans, not having sort of an intermediate intermediary company between you and the people who consume your content? Yes, I love it. So it's that way for me for writing as well. I've also basically been my own PR person and I've booked some amazing stuff just through connections. So I think it's really lovely. And um, the best thing about this is that, you know, you still might get a record deal or if you're a a writer, you still might get a publishing deal, but you're building your platform, you're building your fans as you go. So I think there is no harm in doing it. And I'm a big fan of being able to be empowered and then that you don't even necessarily have to have a record label or someone who's producing you because you have the tools on your own. And, and also as you go through this process, you, I think, become a stronger musician and uh, have a stronger persona that just works best anyway. Yeah. And taking control of your career and all aspects of your art, it can be very empowering as it sounds like it is for you, but it's not without challenges. I'm sure you've had some times in your career where, you know, you've gone through bumps. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to maybe talk about one of those experiences and tell the listeners how you worked through it to ultimately achieve success. Well, I think the, the most important thing is just to start small. I, I think a lot of people kind of impression that you have to just like all of a sudden become like an instant rock star <laughs> or whatever it is that you're doing. And even when there are people that are quote unquote one hit wonders, the truth is that they have probably spent years getting to that point where they were discovered or, you know, suddenly had that success. So I can think of a lot of times in my history, like as an actress, one of the worst things was just, you know, going to audition after audition after audition and like nothing happening. And um, the importance of just making it happen on your own, especially now with self-produced stuff just in any genre, you know, any type of media that you don't have to wait for someone to say, oh, you're good enough. You can just make it yourself. You create your own opportunities. And especially yeah. in the acting world, I've noticed this more and more where a lot of actors and performers aren't waiting for somebody to give them a part. They'll, they say, forget it. I'm just going to make my own TV series, movie, whatever it is. You yeah. know, put it out on YouTube and I can give myself the part I want to have. And, you know, it, it's and that's one of the benefits of the creator centered industry is, you know, you're getting all, a lot of great new content out there that's being driven by people like you, the actual performers, as opposed to the companies. Right. And as you get out there, even if it's stuff that might not be super professional in the beginning, you meet people, you learn as you go. So it, it was wonderful because when I was younger, I actually studied theater in college and I did acting and costume design. And I, this was that time I was talking about where I just went to so many auditions and I just didn't get that many parts. And then later uh, in my career, I started to get cast through people I just met that were doing things. And that was amazing. And then once you get cast and you meet more people and then it just kind of stumbles. So just get going, just get started and don't worry about, um, um, you know, if it's not going as quickly as you like, and also, yeah, don't wait for the opportunity to make it happen on your own. Oh, I love that. That's, you got the message of this show down. <laughs> I feel like you were, I feel like you were writing my, uh, my break the business book with me. Like, <laughs> you, you got, you got awesome. all the talking points. It's great. Um, and the other thing I really like about you is you've spoken a bit in the past about, uh, the tendency for musicians specifically in this new music industry to be creative in many areas outside of music, much how you are and how musicians can use those other talents 
and kind of combine them together to move your careers forward. Can you talk a little bit about your experience as someone who does many things other than music and maybe talk a bit about how you've sort of combined them to present yourself to the world in a unique way? Yeah, well, I think we've all been given whatever gifts we have for reasons. So it's not like there's anything extra. Whatever we're interested or good at, it's it's kind of there on purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to know that and also that it's not necessary to choose. And that's a fairly recent idea in our history that you have to choose one thing, almost like we're robots or, you know, we're like an assembly line that this is the thing that we do. <laughs> and I think that's more treating us like mechanized creatures and not as like a deep soul person that we are. And I think when we honor the different aspects and different gifts that we have, it's amazing how it synthesizes and comes together in a really great way. So I love interviewing people. I love music. I love all these different things. And as a result of that, I've been able as a host to connect with really amazing people that I learned from. Um, As a psychic, I use that for writing, you know, all these things fit together in a particular way. And as they do for me, they do for others as well. Oh, that's marvelous. And, you know, a piece of advice I've imparted to artists, and it's not something I can take credit for. It's something that other artists have told me. Um, I'm, I rarely come up with the good ideas on my own. I just sort of am a vessel for them and, uh, you know, steal them from other people. But um, something I've heard other artists say is one of the best things you can do in your career, especially early on, is take inventory of what all of your strengths are. Um, and what all of your interests are, um, even if they don't seem to be related to each other. And once you sort of have that list down, you know, think of creative ways to sort of tie them together. For example, let's say you're a really good musician and you can cook really well. And when you're cooking, people are interested in the things you cook. Well, that sounds like somebody who can create a YouTube series in which they do a, you know, cooking videos and they can put their music in the videos because music can be a very expensive piece of content to license. So if you can yeah. make your own music, you got something there. And, you know, and, and there, there are many ways you can put it together. And in this industry where everybody has access to this new free promotion now, you need, some, you need a unique way to present yourself to cut through the clutter. If you're just a musician, well, there's many musicians out there. But if you can be the musician who cooks or the musician who interviews people on a podcast and can predict the future, um, that can <laughs> that can create a unique offering to the public and help you stand out. Yeah, I agree. So whatever makes you kind of unique or even, dare I say, weird is actually a strength. And what most people do is actually try to hide that. They try to blend. <laughs> and I think that's just the opposite of what makes you successful as an artist. Oh, yeah. I'll be weird. We need more weird people around here. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, take inventory of those strengths for sure. Um, I imagine people are just becoming increasingly intrigued with <laughs> everything that is Laura Powers. And I know you have a bunch of different podcasts and, um, I would, you know, I would certainly love it if you could, uh, tell people about where some of the other, uh, interview shows you do other than behind the music. Yeah, sure. So my first podcast I started is on the sort of psychic, spiritual and health realm. So if that particular area intrigues you recommend checking that out it's called healing powers podcast and that's what got me kind of into podcasting i've been doing that one for five years so it's very established large audience and then once i figured out podcasting and i loved it i decided wow i really should do podcasts on some of the other areas of interest so i have one for writers i have one for the entertainment industry as a whole behind the music we've talked about i have one for design and they have another one that's on business and empowerment some more kind of practical tools for business so because musicians, you know, are in business, basically, that one also might be helpful for them on the more sort of application side. Okay, again, when do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> so I will say I do have an assistant who helps me a lot, and I also have processes in place which helps me. Um, that said, I I probably uh, might not sleep as much as some people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so in between those brief periods, you know, those five minutes of sleep, you get a night and then the rest of your time when you're podcasting, I'm sure you have some brief periods where you're on social media. And for those people who want to find you on social media to keep this conversation going, uh, what's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, so I am on Facebook. I have a page for various different podcasts, and you can also just find me under Laura Powers. I'm on Twitter at that Laura Powers and on Instagram at Laura Powers 44. 
Very cool. And now before we let you go, and again, I want to have you on again and again, because I don't know anybody else who is a psychic <laughs> and who does all of these cool things that you do. And, you know, so you just seem like you're going to be a never ending font of great interview. So, but, uh, so before we let you go though, uh, do you have any last pieces of advice to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? Yeah, I think this is for indie artists as well as just people in general that, it's important not to work with people that don't recognize your value. I see this a lot when people aren't working with or trying to work with producers or trying to get attention from agents or, you know, whoever that are not seeing that person's worth and it's just lost energy. So wait and connect with those who value you already or see your potential. And when you do that, it sends a message out into the world, basically confirming your value. And then you basically attract those opportunities instead of like spinning your wheels and trying to put a lot of energy into something that's not going to have an output. Well said. Uh, find out everything there is to know about Laura Powers by visiting www.laurapowers.net. Laura, it has been a pleasure don't be a stranger. We'd love to have you on again real soon. I'd love to be back. We'll be right back on the Break the Business podcast. Friend of the show, John Ratzenberger here with Ryan Carella, author of Break the Business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry, available on Amazon.com. Ryan, tell the folks a little about the book. Well, the book's about empowering Well, artists. that's fascinating, Ryan, but it's only a 15-second commercial. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody. Our thanks to Laura Powers for joining us in the previous segment. Find out about her many, 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 many fantastic projects, her podcasts, everything she's got going on by visiting laurapowers.net. All right. Now, as promised, here is an excerpt. This is chapter one of the audiobook that I got coming out for Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence, and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry. Thank you all very much for listening. Part one. Why You Don't Want a Record Label Chapter 1 Introduction Congratulations! You have worked very hard, you have had some great early success in life, and now you're finally ready to buy your first house. But you're a bit of a free spirit, and you don't want to live in some cookie-cutter dwelling that looks like every other place on the block. You want to build your own house, and live in something that's truly special and unique. A large bank has heard about your interest in home building and has an intriguing offer for you to consider. The bank will loan you money to build your dream house, but only under certain conditions. First, to pay off the loan, you will have to give a large portion of your income each month to the bank, but only a small percentage of that money will actually go toward paying off your balance. Moreover, even though you have a very specific vision for what you want your house to look like, and you happen to be quite skilled at architecture, the bank still gets to make all final decisions on every aspect of the house's design and construction. But wait, there's more. Once your house is built, the bank can, and most likely will, force you to build more houses for them under the same lending terms, even if you don't want to build those houses. Even if you believe that there are better uses for your time and labor, you will be stuck and you have to keep taking the same large loans from them to build those houses. And as you finish each house, the bank will continue to take a large portion of your income and will keep doing so until the balances on all of your home loans are paid off. This will take a very long time if it happens at all because, as previously noted, only a small percentage of what you pay actually goes toward paying off your debt. Oh, and whether you pay off the loans or not, the bank gets to keep every single one of the houses you built. You heard that right. They own all of your houses, fully and completely. Does this sound like a good deal to you? If not, then stay the hell away from record contracts. Because if you change house to album in the example above, then those are basically the terms of a standard deal with a typical record label. If you are reading this book, you're probably interested in a career in the music industry. You want to be a big star and make a big impact on the world. And I think that's wonderful. I happen to love musicians and have many musician friends. They're my favorite kind of people. 
In fact, the very reason I went to law school and became an entertainment lawyer was so that I could help creative souls just like you share their gifts with the world. I admire you because of your unyielding desire to pursue your dreams, even though so many people in your life, including your own family most likely, probably told you to give up at some point. Have I buttered you up enough? Good. Because I also want to tell you, in case you didn't already know, that the odds are ridiculously stacked against you. Achieving high levels of success as a musician is really tough. To have even a small chance of breaking through, you have to work harder and have more talent than the top 1% of the top 1%. There are basically three job openings for international music sensation right now and a bazillion qualified applicants who want the position. I don't care how skilled you are, although I'm sure you're amazing. I would sooner bet on you meeting a leprechaun while riding a talking unicorn to a Beatles reunion concert than bet on you making it in this industry. That being said, follow your dreams. I believe in you. Did I mention that I love musicians? What this book won't do. Because there are so many of you vying for this brass ring, you will find no shortage of books out there geared toward giving musicians advice on breaking into the industry. Many of these how-to books are centered around landing a coveted record deal to achieve success, as if the mere act of signing your name on a label contract will immediately bring you great fortune and cause Grammy Awards to descend from the sky. Let me absolve you of this notion now. Getting signed will not necessarily bring you long-term success in the music industry. If you need proof of this, go to the website of any major label and look at their full roster of artists. After you get past the handful of genuine superstars, you'll find yourself saying, who the hell is that, at roughly half the names on the list, and that band still exists, at the other half. Despite all of this, those music business books devote page after page to suggesting supposedly fast and easy routes to getting a record deal. This book will not do that. If you are looking for the How to Get Signed book, then keep looking. Or better yet, let me save you 19 bucks and just summarize those books for you in 100 words or less. If you want a record deal, according to those how-to guides, just 1. Record a demo tape with a couple rough recordings on it. 2. Make a press kit featuring your photos and a biography, preferably dripping with hyperbole. 3. Get an entertainment lawyer to shop your demo and press kit to record companies. 4. Sign a record deal. And finally, five, do the backstroke in the solid gold pool filled with the money you just earned. Cheekiness aside, the advice from those books is outdated at best and pure nonsense at worst. First of all, the days of getting discovered with a rough demo tape you recorded in your parents' basement are long gone. Today, many labels expect you to come to them with a completely finished album and a pretty decent following of fans before they will even consider taking you on. And having a lawyer shop your music to labels? Come on, that's just silly. Do you really think you're going to get a yes from an A&R department just because some tone-deaf shyster vouches for your talent? Take it from this tone-deaf shyster. Record deals don't happen that way anymore. Labels don't care about what people like me think what this book will do. So no, this book will not help you get signed. Instead, it will give you far more valuable advice. Rather than get you closer to labels, this book will outline the reasons why you need to stay far, far away from them. Rather than suggest ways to get you into the business, the ensuing chapters will instruct you on how to be your own business. Setting out to be your own business is the most important thing musicians can do nowadays. Because not only is a record contract extremely unlikely to result in your superstardom, signing one also poses a significant risk of completely ruining your life, as it has for many of my friends and clients. If you have never read one before, a standard record contract is a very long and complicated document. The lengthiest ones can easily be over 100 pages. They are a bewildering mass of oddly defined terms, industry jargon, counterintuitive clauses, and lawyerly gobbledygook. Often, seasoned entertainment attorneys will have to spend many hours sifting through them to even begin to comprehend the terms of such an agreement. And any lawyer who ever claims to fully understand the terms and risks of a particular contract is either lying or ignorant. 
Record contracts are a mess, and that is exactly how record companies like it. Purposefully buried within that indecipherable stack of papers is a collection of clauses designed specifically to rob artists blind and to continue robbing them blind for years to come. The rest of the chapters in this part of the book will break down a standard record deal and show you just how nasty these agreements can be. Granted, not every record deal will have all of the terms I will describe, but the vast majority of them do. In fact, the contractual terms I will discuss in the subsequent chapters are so entrenched in the industry that it is all but impossible for lawyers like me to negotiate any of them away on your behalf. Labels come into the transaction with little inclination to change the way they do things, and the least friendly terms in the contract are usually presented as a take-it-or-leave-it scenario for the artist. Unless you want your music career to end up like your hypothetical home-building career that we previously discussed, I suggest you choose the latter.